0: Let me give you a brief instruction and an exhortation um, before we start this reading. Uh, First of all, it is a very long passage, it is 52 verses. All right? But it is the word of the Lord. We say thanks be to God. And hearing the word of the Lord is one of the most important things you will do in your life. So guard your heart. Keep your eyes focused on the text, your heart. If you aren't looking at the Bible, at least meditate and listen. Remember the Lord said to his people, he didn't say, read, O Israel. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Second thing, there is a transition in the middle of this passage. Once we get to about verse 24, uh, it's not something that happens next, but it's basically like a step back. So that you can see what happened to the people and um, uh, basically the circumstances that Saul had created as a king. So again, 52 verses. After we read verse 23, you'll kind of notice a shift. And it's mentioning something that was already in play so that you can have maybe a further understanding of why the first half of the text happens. So let me encourage you, devote yourself to the hearing of God's word at this time. First Samuel chapter 14. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison. That's a small group of Philistines, not the whole army. That is on the other side. But he, Jonathan, did not tell his father, Saul. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migram. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, was wearing an ephod, this thing that priests normally wore. But the people did not know that Jonathan was gone. And between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. The name of one was Bozez, yes, they named their rocks, and the name of the other, Senna. The front of one faced northward opposite Michmash and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Then Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, to the Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Do all that is in your heart, his armor-bearer said. Go then, here I am with you, according to your heart. And then Jonathan said, Very well. Let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say this to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up. But if they say this to us, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has delivered them into our hand and this will be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look. The Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you something. Jonathan, leaning in, as it were, said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer after him. And they, the Philistines, fell before Jonathan. As he came after him... His armor-bearer killed them. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made was about 20 men within about half an acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled. The earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. Now the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah, Benjamin, looked, and there was the multitude, that is the Philistines, melting away. And they went here... And there, and Saul said to the people who were with him now, call the roll and see who has gone from us. When they had called the roll, surprisingly, Jonathan, his own son, and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. And it happened while Saul talked to the priest That the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. It was getting louder and louder. So Paul said (laughs) Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. And Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle. And indeed every man's sword was against his neighbor. They were fighting themselves, and there was very great confusion. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim when they heard that the Philistines fled. They also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Now here's your transition. Transition. Like it was, say, and a few hours before this. The men of Israel were distressed that day. For Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening or before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people, none of the army tasted food. All the people of the land came to a forest and there was honey on the ground. Remember, the Lord had promised a land flowing with milk and honey. When the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. (laughs) No one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with this oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of the rod that was in his hand, dipped it in a honeycomb, and put it to his mouth. And his countenance, his facial expression, brightened. And one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened, because I tasted just a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. They had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agelon. So the people were very faint. So what happened? The people rushed on the spoil. They took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. That's worse than sushi. Then they told Saul saying, look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. And then Saul built an altar to the Lord. By the way, this was the first altar. That he built to the Lord. And Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. They said to Saul, Do whatever seems good to you. The priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But God did not answer him that day. Saul said, Come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. He said to all Israel, You be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. The people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. That is, help me make this decision. But remember, God did not answer him that day. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. Saul said, Cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, Father said to son, Tell me what you have done. Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand, So now I must die? Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you, son, shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them, his enemies, and he gathered an army. He attacked the Malachites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. The sons of Saul were Jonathan. Jeshui and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these: the name of the firstborn Merab, the name of the younger Michal. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now there was fierce war With the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, that is, that could help him, he took him for himself. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Starting with an obvious statement here all leaders are imperfect. All leaders are imperfect. Except the Lord Jesus, of course. All leaders are sinners, except the Lord Jesus. But some leaders are more imperfect and more sinful than others, aren't they? If you were to study leaders throughout history, children, much like you do in your history lessons in school, you look through various points of history and see these different kings and all that such, you will see this truth proven that leaders are imperfect. If you look at leaders today, you will see this. It is part of the reason that the Lord warns his people over and over again not to put their trust in princes. That is, don't put your trust in civil leaders. Children, you evaluate leaders, right? Could be as simple as a question during this history homework that I mentioned. Daddy, was this king a Christian? Mommy, was this president good? Why did God do this with that man, but do that with this one? These are hard questions, aren't they? You can be a good leader, though, and as Saul reveals, you can be a bad man. That is true. It is undoubtedly true in history that God has used bad men to bring about good things as leaders. And I think Saul probably falls into this category Because when you get to the end of chapter 14, the summary of his reign, as it were, because that's what it is, it's his genealogy, more or less, and then a summary of what his kingship was like, it's quite positive, isn't it? Right? It doesn't dwell on the negatives. I say all that to say, don't be too rough on Saul. He made some major blunders, yet he was thrust into an impossible position as the first earthly king of the people of the Lord. Remember, And I won't rehash it for you, what the Lord thought of their asking for a king. It wasn't a good thing, because he was their king. The reign of Saul, though, it's a peculiar time for the people of God. It takes up a large majority of the book of 1 Samuel. The title of the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel, is not really an indication of the contents. Because 1 Samuel is mainly about Saul. He takes up as many words, if not more, then uh, Samuel and David. you read the, the book of First Samuel and you get Saul's reign, how it's up and down. one minute he's defeating the enemies of God and his people. the next minute he's doing something really bizarre, like trying to kill his own son. This is what we've read this morning. and then again, you get to the end of his the summary of his reign at the end of chapter 14, and you think that, oh, Saul's about to fall off the pages of this book. well, Spoiler it still talks about him through chapter 31. Right? We're only in chapter 14. His death is not recorded until chapter 31, that is the last chapter of 1 Samuel. And as it reads to us in the text this morning, Saul's kingship goes downhill almost as quickly as it has been established. You remember In our sermons, as we've been going through 1 Samuel, just a few chapters to the left in your Bible, Saul's reign, Saul's kingship, or his sovereignty began. But in our passage today, Jonathan begins to take a more prominent role. Now, you need to know that the text is written this way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is not simply man's word. It is the word of the Lord without error. It is written this way so that you'll begin to see Jonathan fill the void for Israel that Saul had been unable to fill. Jonathan is, in many ways, what his father was not. And yet he was never king. Early in Saul's reign, back in chapter 11, maybe you remember this, they were able to gather an army of over 300,000. In chapter 13, as we read last week, they're only able to muster an army of 3,000. And in chapter 14, as we read today, did you notice how many men were with Saul? About 600. Quite a difference, isn't it? Not to mention that on Saul's side is a descendant of Eli. His family is still serving in the priesthood. And Ichabod is even mentioned. Don't have time to rehash that, but remember how awful that family was. This is the backdrop of Jonathan rising to prominence. Jonathan does not take 600 men with him in this moment to face the Philistines. Jonathan takes one man, a supportive man, his armor bearer. They basically sneak away from the troop in order to go to work against the Philistines. Remember, these are the same Philistines that, as the end of chapter 13 told us, they had crippled the people of God from having any weapons. If they wanted weapons, they had to go into the land of the Philistines to get them. And even if they had weapons, they had to go into the land of the Philistines to have them sharpened. This may not sound like a tremendous deal to you, but this moving of Jonathan and one man is about as brazen as David going out to face Goliath indeed it's numerically it's more brazen right Two verses 20 is a little different than one verses one. Jonathan's faith is tremendous. He trusts in the Lord. what a wonderful sight to see in the scriptures. He trusts in the Lord what a glorious reminder for us the chief distinction between Jonathan and his father Saul, could probably begin and end there. Jonathan trusted the Lord. He had a firm trust in God. Did you hear what he said in verse 6? To me, if you have a summary verse for 1 Samuel 14 that highlights the entire theme of the chapter, this is it, 1 Samuel 14 verse 6. Children, listen to this. Where Jonathan said, come, let us go over to these Philistines, these uncircumcised, these people who are unholy, these people whom God forbids us from fraternizing with. We have to put them to death. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Do you remember all the excuses that Saul had in chapter three thirteen 13 for his own disobedience? He blamed the people. He blamed Samuel. He blamed God. How does Jonathan begin here? With an unshakable faith in the Lord. And he's humble about it. Humble brag, as it were. It may be, he says, that the Lord will work for us. It may be, for nothing restrains him. It's almost like Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. Do you remember what they said to Nebuchadnezzar and his men? The Lord may save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to that statue. The Lord might do it. We know he can do it. But even if he chooses not to, I'm not going there. I'm not disobeying you in this way. This is what Jonathan is saying. To give a translation, God does not need our help. However, he requires our trust. Why don't we go out with full trust in him, Jonathan says, to do what he has promised? And before we get too far into the application on this, I want you to be careful with this. Many, many, many Christians will read passages like this and think that anything that they believe that requires faith, or anywhere that their faith leads them is a place that the Lord will give victory. Be careful. Jonathan is a soldier in the Lord's army doing what a soldier in the army ought to do. He's finding a way to defeat the enemy. He's not a husband trying to do the work of a mother, or a wife. He's not a woman trying to do the work of a man. The Lord is not going to lead you by your faith to do something that he forbids you to do in Scripture. Jonathan is a soldier, acting like a soldier, behaving with full trust in God. He did what a soldier does, especially a soldier of the Lord. He went forth with trust in the Lord, and the Lord saved Israel that day, verse 23 says, and as we'll see in a minute, Verse 45, Jonathan is vindicated. Now, you might say, Pastor, that sounds all well and good, but I don't like it. Let me give you this word of encouragement. If you want to try and do something that is disobedient to Scripture because you believe the Lord is leading you, just know you'll have to answer before Him someday, not me. Are you sure? that you'll be vindicated because you'll have to answer for it. We have to answer for every word we speak, every decision we make. You see, Jonathan's faith is not only noteworthy, but so is his courage. Children, you remember the beginning of the book of Joshua where the Lord repeats to Joshua these these commands and promises, be strong and courageous. What an example of this. And Jonathan, be strong and courageous in the Lord. You might breeze through the description of this terrain or this land in verse 4, but if you're really listening in verse 13, you heard that Jonathan climbed up this passage on his hands and his knees. This was no easy task. As I, I hinted at as I was reading through it, these rocks were so big they had names. This isn't a rock collection that Jonathan stumbled upon. You could call it God's rock collection, I guess. There were sharp rocks on either side. It doesn't appear to be the kind that you can simply take notice and say, oh, I guess I'll go around it. He had to pass through this in order to get to where he would be obeying the Lord and fulfilling this this drive that he had by the Holy Spirit. He had to carefully make this trek on hands and knees, trusting the Lord with every push, with every pull, and with every grip. As Jonathan is, is doing this work with the Lord, as they say in verse 45, as he's doing this, the Philistines began to, to perk up. They say, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden. You could probably imagine them chuckling, right? They're coming out. Back in chapter 13, remember this the people began to scatter from Saul. Some went into caves, they were afraid, some hid in thickets. Some hid in, uh, well, I guess you can't hide in a rock. Uh, Some hid behind rocks and caves. Some hid in holes. Some hid in pits. Serious hide and seek. Some even left the area altogether. We're told that they crossed back over the Jordan, saying, I don't want any part of this. That's in chapter 13. And the Philistines, they see only two men, and they call them up. And this group of 20 Philistines or so, ends up dead on the ground. Now, let me give you a reminder. The people of God have always loved, cherished, memorized, and known the Word of God. Back in Leviticus 26, verse 3 and verse 8, listen to this. It says, If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, five of you shall chase a hundred. A hundred of you shall chase 10,000 to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. Is it possible that Jonathan was remembering a promise like this? Though there be few of you, because I am your God and you obey me, I will put to death whatever number I wish. The God who may deliver them. Jonathan wasn't certain that he would, but he was certain that he could. The God who may deliver them, he had done so. Jonathan and his armor bearer defeat about 20 Philistines, the text says. This may seem no, like, like no big deal, but again, listen to the response. The Philistine camp, were are told, they began to tremble. There was even an earthquake. Who must be at work for something like this to be taking place? The Lord. The Lord God Almighty. This is our God, dear friends, the God who is not restrained from saving by many or saving by few. You see, the Philistines, they're not the only ones who begin to notice. Saul's watchmen notice, we're told, and they suspect something is occurring. Saul imagines that some of his own men must be missing. There's no way the Philistines are simply fighting themselves. And what do they do? They call roll. They discern that Jonathan and his armor bearer have gone over. And then they go over to see what's going on. They're going to go check it out. Let's go see this battlefield over here. What are the Philistines doing? They even appear to be fighting amongst themselves, the text tells us. Did you notice what this caused in the text? There had been Hebrews among the Philistines. The people of God had gone to live with the Philistines. Instead, it's more safe, right? They probably have better weapons. Their king's not Saul. Their God doesn't, you know, let them be hungry. The Philistines have these... Group of Hebrew, This group of Hebrews among them, and they come out, they leave, and they rejoin Saul and Jonathan. All those men I mentioned earlier that were in hiding are coming out to join Saul and Jonathan, the text tells us. Whatever driving away of the Philistines that still needed to be done, it is completed by the end of this scene. And we're told that the Lord saved Israel that day. Do not overlook what got us to this point. It is the faith and courage of two men. The faith and courage of two men brought forth the fulfillment of God's promise to defeat his and their enemies. It wasn't an army that started this. There was no manpower in the beginning. I don't care who you are. Two against 20 is not good odds. And the text even says about 20. It was two men crossing treacherous terrain with enough faith to say, maybe God will save us. We know that he can. Let's see if he will. There is no doubt in my mind that you need to have this truth driven home to you today, especially as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. If you have something that you know needs to be done or said, and you're afraid, know that the Lord does not require any more than you have to offer, but a willingness to do it. The Lord Jesus fed thousands with a little bread and fish and enough baskets left over for each of his disciples. He used what they had. He used what they gave the temptation for so many of us is we do not believe the Lord is able and therefore we will not give what we have. We don't put forth the effort to talk to our children. We don't put forth the effort to talk to our neighbor and share the gospel. We don't put forth the effort with our spouses because, quite frankly, they don't deserve it. We don't tell our adult children that they are in error because who are we that we could persuade them? Do you see the problem with all of those objections? The focus is on you. You not having what it takes, friends, is the whole point. It's the entire point. Nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Friends, do the work that God has given you. The Lord is with you. He is for you. When the Lord Jesus sent his disciples out at the end of Mark chapter 16, he said this very same thing. I'm jumping ahead. I'm actually going to quote something from John 15. I'm sorry. When the Lord Jesus sent his disciples out, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. You are not the point. He is. He chose you to bear fruit, that your fruit should remain. Dear children of the Father, siblings and servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, say it to yourself over and over again, nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. What the remainder of this chapter does is it highlights more foolishness of Saul. Remember, I mentioned this transition where you kind of get a, this is what was also happening moment. He calls on the people to fast amidst wartime. That's not smart. Fasting is smart and godly and biblically required, but there is a time for it. When your men need special and non-typical physical strength, Fasting is not proper. Indeed, it is wrong to require. And yet, the foolishness of Saul is not the point. As I said earlier, it is the vindication of Jonathan. You might be tempted to say that Jonathan violates the fast, that he sinned by disobeying, but he doesn't really. For two reasons at least. First of all, it was an unjust oath. It was improper. It was foolish. Saul should not have done it. So he was not technically bound by it. Second, Jonathan did so in ignorance. He didn't know that the oath had taken place. You see, this foolishness of Saul is he provoked his people. He troubled the land. Imagine having to say that about your father who has the power to kill you. Saul did try to kill his son, remember? What is it with these fathers in 1 Samuel? Remember Eli. He wouldn't discipline his wicked sons, but look at Saul. He wants to kill his godly son. Saul had provoked his people to violate the law of God and to basically eating worse than raw food. They were so hungry and desperate because of their submission to him that it led them to sin. It's a double sin. Reminder, as we said in 1 Corinthians 7, that your sin can provoke other people to sin. Paul especially warns fathers against this in Ephesians. Do you remember this charge to you, fathers? Do not provoke your children to wrath. Saul, as a political father, had done just that. And you even have this tidbit near the end of the text that Saul built his first altar to the Lord at this time. Probably not a compliment. His first one, you know, by the way, been reigning a few years. Saul continues to answer for his own sin. He tries to blame things on Jonathan, but it doesn't work. He had been told in chapter 13, remember, that the Lord was removing his kingdom from him. Here in chapter 14, Saul seeks counsel from God. But the Holy Spirit, again, I want you to know that this is the Holy Spirit writing these words and speaking to you. Because of what it says. Some of us, quite frankly, do not have room for this in our Christianity. The Holy Spirit says that God did not answer him that day. This is an important reminder God does not answer all prayers, He doesn't hear all prayers either. Here, but that's another sermon. Let's close with the vindication of Jonathan which includes a tremendous encouragement. God did not answer Saul. In some sense, you could say God was not with him and for him, right? But notice what the people say as the text says they rescue Jonathan from his own father. They ask this question, Shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. He has what? Jonathan, this faith filled and courageous son of Saul, worked with God. He was not numerous. He was willing he tried he believed did you know the same thing is said at the end of Mark's gospel Jesus ascends up into heaven says after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them he was received up into heaven sat down at the right hand of God and they went out and preached everywhere the Lord working with them with them And confirming the word. They went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them. They had the same thing Jonathan had. The promises of the Lord. The commands of the Lord. And they put faith into action. They believed the Lord. And they worked with him. Friends, that very thing is available to all of the people of God today. You young Christians, children... Let me encourage you that the Lord is working in your home, but He's inviting you to work with Him, not against Him. Your disobedience is you working against the Lord and refusing to work with Him. Your unbelief, if it is such a thing, oh child, is you working against the Lord. If you have a Christian family, you must know that he is at work and you are blessed to even have the option to join him. Spouses, the same thing goes for you, but I'll come back to you in a second. Christian singles, parents or not, the Lord is working. He invites you to work with him, not against him, and believe that he is not restrained by number, by giftedness, by finance, or by anything. He only needs you to be Willing. So the spouses, you married ladies, the Bible warns you that your temptation will be to be against your husband. When he seeks to lead you and your home in a Christian fashion, he is working with the Lord. The question is are you? You married men. The Bible warns you that your temptation will be to neglect your wife. When she pleads with you to take a more godly role in the home and to lead her and your children with gentleness and attentiveness, she is working with the Lord. The question is, are you? Examples are endless. And I challenge you as we finish our preparation for the Lord's table to see the areas that you need the strength that only the Lord provides. And pray to him that you would be able to see where you have been nothing more than unwilling to simply act where he promises to work. You, dear Christians, the Lord Jesus Christ's work for you, his cross, his passion only guarantees that these things are yours even further. This table, it puts you before the infinite and eternal certainty that God is working, that he has worked for you, that he has worked in you, and he desires to work with you, with you for his holy purposes, not your sinful desires, not your crazy oaths or your wild dreams that have no concern for his glory and the good of those that would come after you. May the Lord God Almighty grant us eyes to see and ears to hear by way of the cross of our Holy Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray.